and urban India. Honey, it's not all about the Kama Sutra. Honey, today it's really not all about the Kama Sutra because we're going to get real serious. What are we going to talk about today, Ruchi? I don't know, Natalie, because we've produced these podcasts about uh, a lack of sex education within sex education classes. We've also talked about a lack of proper informative sex positive guidance by gynecologists and other doctors in cities. So why are we here today? We're here because we're not the only people talking about this. We want to hear from other voices of authority. We want to hear what they're saying and doing. Organizations, activists, what else is going on out there to tackle these really serious problems? And what are these serious problems that we speak of? Sex education classes not being sex positive and being dry clinical information about reproductive organs and hormones. And even more serious, doctors shaming young women for engaging in what they say premarital sex and not providing for them the health care, the sexual health care that they actually sought in the first place. Now that is a problem and we're here to talk about it. We are thrilled to introduce our panellists for today. Nicole Cheatham, Director of International Youth Health and Rights at Advocates for Youth, based in Washington, D.C., an organisation that focuses on adolescent reproductive and sexual health. Nicole has 20-plus years' experience and expertise in youth-led advocacy, peer education, youth-friendly services, and parent-child communication. Also joining us is Paramita Vora, a filmmaker and writer whose work focuses on gender, feminism, urban life, love, and desire. Paramita is the founder and creative director of Agents of Ishq, a multimedia digital project about sex education and the sexual culture in India, which promotes open and honest discussions to explore ideas about sex and sexual practices. I'll begin with a question for Paramita. Um, Agents Mm of Ishq really pushes the boundaries when it comes to providing accessible, youth-friendly, user-friendly information about uh, sex and the sexual culture in India. Could you maybe elaborate on why this is so significant in the current climate of um, urban Indian society and why must it be done this way? Well, I think, frankly, I think Agents of Ishq is significant globally speaking, because I think that there are very, very few spaces. I mean, I think there are some like beautiful digital projects actually online, but um, I think to be able to, to uh, the, the, you know, I am not a fan of the uh, opinion that India is a repressed society and we can't talk about sex, etc. I think rather that the conversation around sex globally has gone through phases and we end often to speak of sex in terms of crises. So HIV or sexual violence, so the bad things become the reason why we should be addressing sexuality. But really, Agents of Ishq is, I think, just wanting to talk about sex as a part of life. And I think that is significant because we don't have a lot of popular culture talking about that in India right now. Um, there's very little sex education. And a lot of the information young people get is from pornography. And I'm not judgmental about that. I think it's fine. But I don't think that can be the only information you get about sex. So I think at that level, to make a a friendly, Indian, non-normative, non-judgmental, non-prescriptive project about sex 
which gives you information but also becomes a place where people share their experiences around sex, love and desire is, is important because it's a contemporary record of what people are experiencing. And it allows a kind of feedback loop to address their needs rather than a top-down kind of approach. And I think the second thing about agents of wish, which is significant for India and many other places maybe, is that we don't separate love, sex and desire. It's all kind of one fluid amalgam, you know. And I think that too much of sex, love and desire is spoken of in pockets and it's addressed in pockets. So if we're going to address the sex ed needs of youth, very little time is given to talk about love, relationships, attraction, what to do with heartbreak, rejection. But all of these things also feed into sex. So I think that these are the two reasons why it is kind of significant and there aren't too many projects of this kind in India. So it matters a lot for urban Indians who are sexually active but not sexually informed or and you know sexually, I would say, fluent. Um, would you maybe talk a little bit more about the kind of youth engagement and feedback that you might have received through this project? So, you know, when Agents Fish first started, one of the reasons for starting this was that post the Nirbhaya gang rape in Delhi, uh, there had been a lot of talk about sexual violence. Mm -hmm. And it was very soon after followed by a government ban on sex education. So there was a lot of discussion about sex education. But whatever was available in the popular culture, and by that I mean mostly stuff online, um, was kind of these comedy videos which looked down on people a lot, I thought. Uh, they either made fun of working class people or said some people are backwards and we are not backwards, we are progressive. But what does it mean to be progressive? If you have information, why aren't you sharing that information with other people? So on. And so to some extent, the idea was to start Agents of Ish to make a kind of uh, a popular language rooted in an Indian context to talk about sex. And we were going to just create materials that would be helpful to people and put them on the site. But about a week, uh, within a week of starting, what happened to us was people began writing to us saying they want to contribute to the site. Like we had a call on the site saying, do you want to be an agent of Ishq? In that case, write to us. But I don't think even we had really thought about what that call meant. So the exciting thing was that people made their own interpretations of this notion of an agent of Ishq and began writing to us. And then we found that there were all of these stories people wanted to contribute of their lives. And... What we understood is that, yes, there is doubt about information, there is doubt about morality, and there is fear about all of those things. But more than anything else, people are searching for a language of emotions and relationships and rooting sex in real life, you know? And so it became kind of uh, the age group of, I would say, about 15 to 30, which is a pretty wide age group, Right. are all writing in in different ways. We also have older people writing in, but this is the kind of, you know, the, the, the biggest population is in that age group. And their concerns vary from just how to figure out romance and relationships to, of course, being curious about sex, to somebody else judging them for wanting to have sex, to just strange sexual experiences they've had. But mostly just to expressing themselves sexually, which I don't think we have much opportunity to do on the whole. Yeah, and I think Agents of Ishk is, is very educational as well in the way that it, it presents information. It's, it's very engaging for people of all ages. Mm -hmm. And I know that uh, Nicole has um, some incredible experience internationally with eff efforts on uh, sexuality education, notably mm -hmm. with UNESCO and UNFPA. So to just 
point a question towards Nicole. What would you say are the most important aspects to include when teaching sex education to youths? Yes, no, that's a great question. Um, I think uh, it's hard to yes narrow it down, but there are, there are various factors, and certainly I think in our experience working with UNESCO and UNFPA on these efforts to support sexuality education in East and Southern Africa, um, we you know we developed a, a curriculum for for pre-service training for teachers, and I'd say a couple of the core components that are really important. For, one would be it, within the training there it's important to have a space where the teach where teachers can actually discuss some of the cultural the cu cultural context that they're facing that they have in their communities and how that's impacting perceptions of sexuality and young people and how it actually impacts the, um, their ability to teach because it, it is a reality across communities and uh, it's important to provide that space Another important piece, I think, it speaks to some of what the things we're talking about too, which is, you know, taking the time to ask teachers uh, to define sexuality education, and um, and informing that that definition because many times there is a, a misperception that it is just about talking about sex when it's so much more. I, comprehensive sexuality education is about healthy relationships. You know, it is about building self-confidence. It is about understanding consent, what consent is. It is about negotiation, communication, and certainly it's about knowing your body, knowing about puberty, knowing about how you become pregnant, how to prevent pregnancy and STIs and all of that. But it's um, that's an important piece for, you know, to just get a sense of the breadth of what it entails. It's it's often helpful. That would be the second thing. And the last thing I'd say, too, in any training is to take time to reflect on personal values, uh, acknowledge that everyone has their own values related to sexuality, but and that these can interfere with delivery of sexuality education that needs to be age appropriate, scientifically accurate, honest, and non-judgmental. So taking the time to reflect on that and 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 the importance <laughs> of removing yourself from your personal values as a teacher mm -hmm. is also I found we found to be an important component of of a tra of training and sort of building that the capacity. And I and and Yes, I would say those three things, but there are many, many more, but that's just a few. You know, th those three things are key. They're very, very important. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And and Paramita, I know that, that you said that Agents of Ishk and, and the topics that it talks about are global topics, but being mm. familiar yourself with the cultural context in which young Indians negotiate information about sex, would you have any input um, in that cultural context on the ideal ways to educate the youth and have conversations about sex? So I think, you know, there isn't an ideal way. These are all newer fields that we're exploring and trying to understand as we go along. Uh, but one of the things that I feel is very important is keeping this feedback loop going, right? Which is that you put something out and then people respond to it and you start altering what you're doing because of that response. Right. So a lot of programs often do not have the flexibility for that. And it is really a very important question, how can a large program have that flexibility? Perhaps it's difficult, uh, like with any syllabus or with any curriculum. I think it's very important for young people to get, I mean, to have a language that is easygoing, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and 
I feel that's not always not always available. I think there are a few projects that do that, but you need to create a new language of sex because mostly, even if you think in India, many of the words for genitals are all abuses. Hmm. If you want to use a word for penis or vagina, which is not a very scientific or technical sounding word, then it's usually an abuse. So I think that there's a huge task of creating a very loving language around sex without, without you know, uh, kind of prescribing that monogamy or heteronormativity is the way to be, also keeping it very open-ended. Hmm. How do you do that is the real, I think, big question. The second thing is that a lot of the material on Agents of Ishq is created in order to make it possible for people who traditionally don't talk to each other about sex but need to do so to be able to do so. So, for example, parents and children. There is so much awkwardness between parents and children talking about sex, but parents really want to be able to, I mean, children really want to be able to do it with their parents. They want somebody older to guide them to some extent. Between teachers and children, it's the same thing. So a lot of our material focuses on creating friendly materials where you can watch the film with, you know, a mixed group gender-wise or with your parents or whatever without feeling awkward. But I think these things are kind of important to do. I was at work with the third thing, you know, we made a film about consent. And one of the reasons we made that film was because, of course, consent is a very difficult, complex, and important issue to discuss. And it has to be done differently for different cultures because the codes of seduction, flirtation, and also sexual morality are different for every culture, right? Right, right. So uh, I think another thing was that there is this very famous British film, which I totally hate, <laughs> about how consent like a cup of tea. Right, and everybody keeps sharing it. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think, mm. I think we have to stop talking about sex in terms of other things. You have to talk about sex on its own terms. Because sex is not like anything else. Sex is like itself. Right. So I think like, when we made the film about consent, a very important contribution that we were making was that consent is about yes, no, and maybe. Mm. And the maybe is the hard part. Because it means you have to wait. If somebody might change their mind, no might turn into yes. Or a maybe might become a no, mm -hmm. or maybe might become a yes. So how do you keep it away from a kind of constricting idea that, you know, if you if you keep persisting with a girl long enough, she will eventually her no will be yes. And how do you bring it to a place where it is about the interaction between people, about charm, about waiting, about getting consent in stages and recognizing that consent happens at every stage. It's not a yes and no forever. So, you know, breaking out of these binaries, I think, is very important because otherwise you give young people information that is so absolute and it doesn't really match up to what you're experiencing in real life, which is almost always muddled. From what you just said and, and from the kind of um, information that we, we can glean from both uh, uh, both your accounts, I mean, I feel like there, what's missing it largely is this uh, user-friendly, youth-friendly vocabulary, mm -hmm. fluid vocabulary that, that has the flexibility to change in terms of context, class, um, cultural position, and that also mm -hmm. teaches you friendlier ways and meanings around sex without being dodgy about it, without beating around the bush about it. Um, right. And then there's just this gaping um, need and, and, and uh, scarcity of sex educators gui guidance around it um, by, by teachers who are fully equipped to, to communicate ideas about this issue. 
and mm. the testimonies in our episodes 1 and 2 of the podcast series expose this institutional problem with a lack of information about sexual health mm. and difficulty in accessing sex health services um nicole mm. would you be able to inform the listeners on some of the potential consequences that that can result uh, from this lack of information and access around sexual sure. health sure could i also just jump back for a second Um absolutely yeah absolutely. no because I did want to share um because I you know I do think that there are so many important there's we need every single mechanism you know possible and all a combination of lots of different strategies to ensure access mm-hmm. to sexuality education that's positive and healthy and affirming you know through new media through schools out of school you know all different ways shapes and forms and i was just you all were just reminding me i hadn't mentioned it earlier but we're also involved in a we also are involved in an initiative called the maze initiative um in collaboration with youth tech health and answer and it's based on short animated films for very young adolescents ages 10 to 14 uh, on sex edu- and, and essentially it's providing sexuality education but it's very positive funny you know there's a lot of humor weaved into the animations and um and very just friendly um and and because it's online through and and housed through and delivered through YouTube we're getting you know uh, comments that's enabling us um like um uh like we were saying earlier you know the, the feedback loop I know Mita you were talking about the feedback yeah. loop is so important yeah. so that's a, just a mechanism that's been really a great experience to sort of use and and sort of be able to inform future animations but anyway i just wanted to throw that out there because it's something it's only been the past couple of years that we've been um doing this and we're um you know it's very exciting work and it's a different sort of very mm. different approach yeah uh, yeah well that's great that sounds yeah. amazing <laughs> <laughs> um but on the let's see on the services oh yes on the consequences piece i mean i think uh, you know it is a global challenge and consequences of lack of information or misinformation can be many you know if you um young people if they're not getting proper information correct information they can you know they are at risk of of course unintended pregnancy there they would uh, yeah, they can be at risk then of dropping out of school of stigma and discrimination related to that um certainly you know higher risk of um contract of uh, requiring an STI including HIV um but also sort of less equipped to navigate relationships and their sexuality and you know build the kind of skills and self-confidence that enable us all to sort of you know thrive in in our in society so i think there are lots of yes lots right. of consequences to mis to lack of information and misinformation and yeah also the testimonies of um uh, of of men and women talking about especially women talking about being shamed by doctors by gynecologists for engaging in sex or uh, something yeah. they call premarital sex and uh, yeah. th- there there are others who say that they don't seek um, gynecological healthcare because they're afraid and embarrassed to being humiliated inside cl- uh, clinics and we raise this question as to whether this is an inadvertent violation of one's rights um wh- 
but Paramita, would you would you have an opinion on that? Yeah, of course, this is a violation of your rights, and it's a violation of the duty of the doctor. Mm. The duty of the doctor is to provide you health care for your body. You know, mm. it's not the duty of the doctor to decide what you should be doing with your body for pleasure. Mm. Um, but what ends up happening is that because the doctors bring, I mean, we have carried a couple of pieces, and the last piece we carried was about the kind of gender prejudices that doctors have towards each other, towards patients and especially towards patients in non-marital situations, and also how these prejudices are even part of textbooks at one level, right? So now I think that it is actually, for me, kind of unconscionable that a doctor should do this, because sometimes it affects the way that they diagnose a patient's problem. It may affect the way that they even actually examine a patient, quite apart from the fact that nobody will go, right? So this lack of lack of uh, being able to detach your personal opinions from the job that you have to do is something that is very hard to change and it will require a lot of education with doctors for that to happen you know um and until that happens there will be no chance of young people going to doctors on their own to to get information about sex which right. is really what should happen when sexually active you know whether you tell your parent or you don't depending on your context you should feel empowered enough to be able to go to a doctor to get contraception, to get to know about STIs and all of those things if you need to. But there's no one I know who would do that. Right. Yeah, and and we strongly we strongly feel that um, that this that the cases that we have of young women being shamed by gynecologists is a violation of their sexual health rights. And and so I mean, if we're all in agreement with that, then. What lies ahead? I mean, where do we go from here in terms of tackling this stigma and shaming? I mean, yes, it's absolutely, uh, uh, you know, terrible what's happening. And this is interesting when I listen to those stories because we've heard them from many different countries around the world. This is not unusual, the shaming of young people, you know, the judgmental attitudes towards young people when they're trying to seek services, they're trying to be responsible and take care of themselves. And yet, you know, they're reprimanded or they're denied proper care. Um, and, you know, for example, many times as, as um, you know, Palomita was saying, you know, for example, you, a young person may not be offered the full range of contraceptive methods because, <laughs> or any for that matter, you know, just because they're young and it's perceived that they shouldn't be having sex in the first place, or if they are, hmm. that th there's only one or two methods that are appropriate for them. True. Um, oh. But I think, uh, you know, certainly in institutions that in training the uh, providers, there's opportunity to um, improve improve services so that they are more youth friendly. I think many times when yeah one of the main reasons young people won't go seek care is because of the judgmental attitudes. It's not even the cost. It's not even other you know this is the number it's not often the number one top line barrier in addition to con uh, violation of confidentiality. You know um, and so the fear that the provider will tell somebody. Uh, what, what that you were there or what you came there for. Um, but I think training providers, you know, there's an opportunity to provide training um, to counter some of these, these challenges, um, but it's certainly not easy. Um, 
we see that there's this institutional problem, like you just said, Nicole. It's not it's not just uh, restricted to um, in uh, sections in Indian society or, or gynecologists in India, but also in parts around the world. So we see this institutional um, pattern where where medical sites, educational sites. Uh, deny somebody the right to information, the right to guidance and health care. And what what about accountability? This is this is such an obvious violation of rights. What about accountability and, and what 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 what's the what's the way to address this sort of uh, a dis- well, discriminatory attitude towards this? You know, I am not a believer in this rights framework to be applied to everything. I feel it's the most limiting kind of framework one can come up with Mm. because these are complex cultural attitudes. Mm. And you actually, if you were to bring a rights framework to a tiny village um, somewhere in Uttar Pradesh, Mm. that might actually have a terribly violent backlash. So you would have achieved nothing. You would have actually executed a greater violence on those who are marginalized with your progressive you know, morality of rights, right? Right, right. So I, I, meaning, do doctors not know what the rights of patients are? They know. Every one of us knows what the rights of people are, but we violate rights all the time, right? right. So I think that when we say accountability, we are actually going into a kind of punitive framework. Hmm. And I feel that's not effective. What is effective is that there should be two things that we have to work hard on culturally. The first being the idea of choice itself that individuals have an have choice. It's not just about right, it is about choice. People make choices of all kinds. And we have to accept that every human being comes with the right to make choices. And this is something that has to be ingrained into every culture because each culture is currently undergoing newness, you know? Mm-hmm. Like every 20 years when technology changes, every culture goes through an upheaval and the old ways give way to the new ways. So it's not specific to any particular type of culture, but it's a general kind of thing we, com- we contest inside culture so we have to uh, we have to create materials which incorporate the notion of choice in everything we do and that has to be part of education and part of everything part of the culture that we create part of popular culture that we make the other thing is really rooted in gender unless because the problem with so much of what is inside sex comes from sexism if you read now about Harvey Weinstein and all the things that have happened what is that it is not just about sex it is about sexism right mm-hmm. so the idea of women as desiring beings and making women's sexuality the center of the discussion, I think is very important. Everything that we do is from the male's sexuality outwards and male desire defines the idea of desire in the world. And with women, we are always talking about their health, their contraception for purposes of pregnancy and spacing children, but not really what they are as desiring beings. So I think these two things are focus areas we have to think very hard about wherever we are. And I think to echo what Nicole was saying, there is a need to have a multiplicity of approaches and only that's going to make a change by making only laws and establishing rights that that is sometimes useful, but it's not in the end going to change what is so culturally ingrained. So there has to be stuff online, there has to be stuff in medical textbooks, there has to be activism that is done with educating doctors, teachers, sex educators, politicians, lobbying with parliament. All of these things will have to be done simultaneously, I feel. What then? I mean, should, should we keep doing what we're doing? But uh, the, the next time a, a young girl feels uncomfortable and completely shaken after an uneventful gynecological visit, what 
what what for her because we we agree that we don't um we don't necessarily advocate for this moralistic righteous uh, rights jargon um but but what do we do what do we keep doing for for this uh, to take the shame out of sex to take the sexism out of the ideas around sex well i mean people do some great initiatives like for example a group of women in india they made a crowdsourced gynecologist guide mm-hmm. who are the non judgmental gynecologists you be to and that guide is online it's a google doc that is right? fantastic right yeah. that's awesome <laughs> yeah so i feel i mean it is very similar to what nicole is saying about i mean this was done by older women but the fact is that young people might make a kind of list of positive things you know lately the lists we've been talking about are all about the bad stuff hmm. which has to be done like who is your harasser who's done what and you should know those dangers but you also need to know where to go for the good stuff right yes i think the sharing of resources that are positive is really important and as you do that more and more it makes the idea common hmm. that you know when we talk about sex it's not always in terms of the bad thing it's not always in terms of somebody who shames you somebody who doesn't give you your rights hmm. somebody who's going to put you at risk but it can also be in terms of somebody who acknowledges your needs hmm. somebody who gives you what you want a friendly a friendly peer educator so if there can be these means of creating resources for people right they can build on themselves over time i, I mean like sometimes the women who created the gynecolo- gynecologist list you know they were obviously educated women very very fluent with online language digital language but if there are sometimes things that we can do to start off an idea hmm. like for example we created a quiz on agents of ishq to tell you to ask how much do you know about your genitals hmm. if you're a woman but also how much do you know about men's genitals <laughs> we're not allowed to talk to each other about this right like right. you should know about his bodies and your own body so it's very popular to say you should know about your body hmm. but it's not popular to say you should know about somebody else's body otherwise how are you going to have good sex right yes. so so we presented it as a science quiz where how how much do you know about it was called a genital knowledge quiz hmm. and for guys and for girls and we wove in the notion of pleasure into the quiz hmm. now we put the quiz online as any of our resources and then we came to know from people that they're using it as a party game hmm. oh. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. That's great. Unexpected, right? And so you have people sometimes taking something you've made and building on it in their own way. Hmm. So when you realize that that is happening, it's also possible to think maybe what can we build that will seed this idea that you can build on this resource yourself. How can we create such things? That's that's lovely. Nicole, do you have anything to add to that to 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 that train of thought? Um I love it. I yes, I mean I think spaces like agents of ish are so so important um to also create uh, yes, the more people can begin to create a positive narrative around sexuality in young people the better. I think young people themselves facilitating their engagement um in the you know on blogs and in, in different forms of social media to to put forward their perspective their view um their narrative um is really important and then at the same time working through institutions um to reframe sexuality and in fact one one of the the, the other thing we talk about too in the training we do with teachers and providers for that matter is 
um, you know, walking them walking through adolescent development and the stages of adolescent development, which mm -hmm. may sound awfully, you know, boring, but actually, you know, it really does sort of sometimes it's a bit of an epiphany when you realize that many things that young people are feeling and experiencing is just part of is part of natural healthy development as mm. part of mm. it is normal quote <laughs> but it's it's uh it's okay to feel like you want to take some risk it's okay to question you know who you are it's okay to want to rebel because this is in fact healthy development mm. anyway i don't know but, but um i think on so many levels changing the paradigm um, and also as it we had mentioned parents earlier um, as it relates to also parents you know needing to understand better um, how to speak with their, their their children about about sexuality and how to provide um, conversations that are not that are positive and reinforcing and that um, don't immediately jump to making um, you know, uh, judgments about what young people are up to or what they're thinking or what they're doing. So listeners, you just had a whole earful of really, really important information from two specialists on this topic. They brought forward some fantastic points. So we want to say a massive thank you to Nicole and Paramita for taking the time to talk to us on our show about some of the topics that we've been covering. Moving forward, we're really inspired to get in contact with this group of women who are based out in Delhi and they have set up a Google document that is listing the gynecologists that you can trust. So it just goes to show that this problem is a really, really prevalent problem that a lot of people are doing things to tackle. Next time you'll be hearing from us, you'll be hearing hopefully from these women as well. Wherever you are out there, if you're listening, we are coming for you. We want to hear from you. We're so excited about the work that you're doing. 